0: Let's open our Bibles together to John 11, verses 17 through 27. John 11, verses 17 through 27, page 1066 of your Pew Bibles. This is the ongoing series on Jesus' I Am statements. And I've really enjoyed studying these statements. It's, it's kind of a race through the Gospel of John, could maybe be another way of thinking of this sermon series. Um, We're at, I believe, number six in Jesus' seven I Am statements, and um, we've been thinking in previous weeks of Jesus' statement that he is the good shepherd and that he cares for his flock uh, in an even greater and fuller way than any human shepherd could care for a flock of sheep. And today we find that Jesus enters into another difficult situation to teach about who he is And what he came to accomplish. It's so often that these I am statements come to people in their moment of need. In a moment of um, exasperation or wondering. And we certainly will see that happening in the story today. Where Jesus comes to his friends, Mary and Martha. Who are distraught with grief at the passing of their brother and Jesus' friend, Lazarus. And so in this passage... Jesus enters into a sad situation. Jesus enters into the life of the lives of real people, who He cared for, who he loved. And um, we'll find that he does not just enter into a situation to, to teach abstract philosophies, but he comes into this situation to bring transformation, to change people's lives, to teach about who He is to point to the salvation that he gives. And so Jesus enters this scene, and I hope that as we read we can remember how Jesus enters into the scene of our lives as well in the same kinds of ways. We'll read starting at verse 17. Having already prayed for God's blessing upon the reading, let's look at John 11, starting at verse 17. This is after Lazarus has died. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know Shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And then, if we want to pause for a moment, the following verses give a a vivid description of Jesus' emotions in that situation. It's there that we find what is known, of course, popularly as the shortest verse in the Bible where Jesus wept. He's responding to people suffering um, by by weeping with them. And then if we move down to verse 38, let's continue reading of what Jesus does in, um, in this sad situation. Look at verse 38. We'll read 38 through 46 as well. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this On account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Throughout the Gospel of John, there are many comparisons between a physical thing in the world, often an everyday kind of thing, like water or bread or light, and a comparison between those physical things and a greater blessing in the kingdom of God. You likely already know several examples where we see that happening in John's gospel, where there's kind of a, a regular thing happening, or, or even sometimes a miraculous thing, like, um, like a miracle of Jesus, that is compared to something even greater that the Christian can look forward to experiencing in God's kingdom. John 3 tells us of a great conversation between Jesus and a religious leader named Nicodemus, where the Lord uses The example of birth, this special, wonderful thing of birth, Jesus says, there's an even better birth in the kingdom of God. He says in John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so, as a child is born into a family, so a person must be born into God's family to see the kingdom of God. And so the greater benefit of being a child of God is experienced by those who believe. An even greater benefit than the life we enjoy in this world is a life in the kingdom of God. And then in the chapter right before that, in John chapter 2, Jesus is teaching how the temple is is a good thing. It's a, a, a place, a structure that represents the presence of God in Israel, but it points to a far greater thing in the kingdom of God. So after Jesus ransacks the temple, sending out money changers, chasing them out, the religious leaders confront Jesus and and, and they ask about what he's doing. He says, to the Jews he said to him, sorry, the Jews said to him, to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things, for sending those money changers out? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, right? The greater temple. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So we find in that passage as well, the temple was a good thing. It represented the presence of God in Israel, but it also pointed forward to a better thing in Christ's kingdom. The temple of Jesus' body was raised after three days, and through Christ the Christian lives always in the presence of God. And so we have this happening all throughout John's gospel where um, something tangible or visible points to an even greater reality in the kingdom of God. John 4, Jesus says, asks for some water from a Samaritan woman and says that anyone who comes to him and who believes will have a well of living water within them. Earlier in the sermon series, we thought about how Jesus is the bread of life that, that satisfies us like no physical bread can. That Jesus is the good shepherd who guards and leads and protects us in a fuller and better way than any shepherd could care for his flock. And so when you're reading the book of John, or when you're reading any other book of the Bible actually as well, ask how events and teaching in a story reveal some greater truth about the character of God, the work of God, and the kingdom of God. We see throughout God's word again and again that, that our sin is, is far more destructive than we realize. But we see throughout God's word, time and again, that God's grace and God's power are also far beyond our understanding. And Jesus' miracle of raising his friend Lazarus from the dead is such a display. It's a display of God's power. But as amazing as that miracle was, it points to something even greater that Christ would accomplish through his own resurrection and an even greater resurrection that he promises for the Christian. We saw this especially in the conversation between Martha and Jesus when the Lord arrives at Bethany. Jesus tells Martha that her brother will rise again, and and she says to Jesus, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And sometimes we would wonder, it's a good thing to wonder about, what would Martha have believed concerning the resurrection Because Jesus wasn't yet risen from the dead, and it was clear that Jesus' disciples were confused about um, his mission and what it would mean that he died on the cross and was risen to life. And so what would Martha have believed concerning the resurrection of the dead? Many people in Jesus' day believed that the Old Testament promises of God for Israel would be fulfilled, and that's a good thing to believe. They should have believed this, of course. The prophets of the Old Testament often wrote about how the day of the Lord would be a day of justice and a day of a display of God's power, a day of the exaltation not only of the name of the Lord, but of God's people, Israel. And so God at that day would exalt Israel among all the nations of the earth. And by this time in Israel's history, that came to include the belief that God would raise faithful Jewish people from the dead so that they could enjoy life in a restored, everlasting kingdom. And so this would have been uh, Martha's belief very likely as she's referring to, I know that he'll rise again at the last day, but but her understanding of that would have been kind of a a foggy, um, nondescript, kind of vague understanding of what that would mean for Lazarus or even for the people of Israel. This statement that Martha makes would have been a little bit similar to statements that people make when they encounter somebody who's grieving today. People would say that there's a a general kind of salvation that they would hope for for people who tried to be good people. Now that's a a little bit more of a flagrant error than what Martha is committing, but it's, it's similar in its vagueness. I think that's what Jesus wants to correct. So where Martha was imprecise because of her ignorance, many people today hold to generic beliefs about heaven and hell, hold to generic beliefs about life after death that aren't really rooted in the scriptures or in the person of Christ, but are sort of general kinds of ideas that we toss around in our culture. um, Things that people say, to try to make someone feel better right away if they're grieving. Even people who attend church regularly might be confused about life after death, about um, the, the precise promises of God concerning what happens after we die. And so Jesus' words are the remedy for Martha and they're the remedy for the person today who is confused or suffering through a kind of overly generic understanding of what life after death will look like. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, believes, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So he raises Lazarus from the dead to prove his power over death. To prove that that in him is a particular salvation, that it is Christian salvation. It's rooted in Christ who is the resurrection and the life. That miracle that Jesus performs for Lazarus' sake is a sign of what will happen in the kingdom of God. A greater thing will happen in the kingdom of God through the resurrection of Christ, through his own resurrection Jesus will will conquer death and will conquer sin. And this also points forward to the resurrection that the Christian will experience at the last day in Jesus' new creation. And so as great as the resurrection of Lazarus was, the raising to life of Lazarus was, an even greater promise is for the Christian today that, that Jesus was risen in a way that Lazarus was not because Lazarus eventually died again. But Jesus, the scriptures say, can never die again because death can't keep its hold on him. And so therefore, Jesus' resurrection points also to our future resurrection for those who believe that death will not be able to ever have a hold on us again because we trust in Jesus who has conquered it. So as good as the miracle was, it points to a greater reality in the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, Christian salvation is about the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead. If you are, are ever in a situation where you have to describe the Christian faith to someone, and I hope it happens, you should pray that it happens, where you maybe would be confronted by a cousin or... Uh, what, some of your own children as you're raising children. I hope this regularly happens. You're telling them what the Christian faith is all about or you have that co-worker who's, who, who's struggling or who's lost and doesn't know what to, what to think, what to believe, and they say, aren't you a Christian? What do you hold on to? What do you believe? I hope that you could remember two events from Jesus' life in describing what the Christian faith is all about. Remember Jesus' death And remember Jesus' resurrection. It's very basic stuff, and I would guess that it almost feels or seems elementary to us after we've heard the story so many times. But this is a question that I've heard seminary-trained people get wrong. It's a question that I've heard answered poorly in um, ordination exams for people who want to be pastors. And so what is the Christian faith all about? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus. He died to atone for our sins. That means that every person who has sinned against God needs to be restored to God. We need the death of Christ to pay for our sins, to pay the price of entry into the kingdom of God. So when describing the Christian faith, first think of the death of Jesus. Second, think of his resurrection, talk of his resurrection, share about his resurrection. Unfortunately, so many Christian descriptions of the Christian faith end with the forgiveness of sins, and they end at the cross. But, brothers and sisters, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. There's the gospel in Romans 4, verse 25. That Jesus not only died to pay for our sin, but he is risen so that we might have life in his name. Jesus' resurrection is the sign and the guarantee that anyone who believes in him will live just as he lives. We will be restored to right relationship with God through Jesus. So when Jesus said he is the resurrection and the life, and that anyone who believes in him will live. He was teaching that he is the picture of the Christian's future. It's amazing to think of it in that way, that Christ is the picture of the future life of the person who believes in him. Now, that doesn't mean that we will inherit all the attributes of Christ in his eternality, in his natural sonship of God. But as he is risen, physically, completely, so we will also be raised to new life through him. And it's hard for us to understand sometimes. But this is a biblical promise. A large portion of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans is helping them understand what it means to be dead to sin and alive in Christ. Chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 of the book of Romans, really all want to answer that question. What does it mean to be dead to sin and alive through Christ? The person who has risen with Christ will bring glory to God by living a holy life. The person who has risen with Christ will live with a a peace, a confidence, a trust in God that, that cannot be taken away or removed. Just as Lazarus was raised to life Physically, so the Christian is raised to life spiritually already by Christ's power and also will experience a physical full, re- a full resurrection when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. This is hard for us to understand how good it will be, how amazing it will be, and yet it's something we have faith in, that truth and that promise of God. Thinking about how much greater it will be than we can already understand, we might think of an illustration of looking at a sequoia tree's seed. What if you showed the seed of a sequoia tree to someone who lived in the desert their whole life? Who had never seen a picture of a sequoia tree, who had never left the desert, but all of the plants that they've ever seen are just scraggly bushes or or little cacti that can spring up. And and while they're living and surviving, it hardly would be an impressive um, plant to look at. Imagine somebody living in in that environment, seeing a, a sequoia tree's seed. They would have really no ability to understand the grandeur, the majesty, we could even say the glory of that amazing tree that will come from that little seed. There's no way that they could f- fully comprehend the, the glory, the magnitude, the grandeur of that plant because all that they've, they've always seen are, are, are just little plants. But the promises of God, including the description of the resurrection life that we have through Jesus, are like that sequoia tree that is beyond our imagination, beyond the imagination of somebody living in the desert where very little vegetation can grow. We see signs of it and we we know what it will look like in some extent because the word of God tells us, but it will be so far beyond our comprehension, more glorious, more wonderful, more full of life than even what Lazarus experienced when Jesus miraculously, amazingly raised him from the dead. Jesus gave the sign of raising Lazarus to point forward to a fuller, greater, more permanent transformation for the believer who has faith in him. Lazarus was dead, and Jesus gave him life. And even for the Christian today, this miracle should make us look forward to the future. Do you think you're alive now? Just wait. You think you're, you're alive and growing in Christ now, and that is a good thing. Just wait. Just wait until what you'll experience in God's kingdom, in this life to some extent, but but even more in the life to come. That it is it is good to be a Christian. It is good to be alive. It is good to be following Jesus in this life. But, but it's just, as we sang earlier, just a foretaste of what we'll experience with Christ in heaven after we die and in his new creation when he returns. So, When Jesus said anyone who believes in him will live, he meant that far more than we could even comprehend. Now, I want to apply this in two very quick and direct ways for us today, this doctrine of Jesus as the resurrection and the life. After Jesus described himself in this way to Martha, did you notice what he asked her? Do you believe this? The question isn't, do you believe in heaven and hell? We should. The question is not, do you believe that you should try to be a good person? We should. But the, do you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe this? That salvation is in Jesus' name, that He is the resurrection and the life. At Ammon Valley, we don't really do altar calls. An altar call, maybe if you're newer to the church, is this this thing that happens in a lot of uh, American evangelical churches where at the end of a sermon, the end of a worship service, um, people commit to following Jesus by coming forward or by raising their hand and asking for, for a personal time of prayer for them. It's not necessarily a bad thing to do, but... Um, I was tempted to do one this morning because of that question of Jesus for Martha. Because it's a question you must ask of yourself. Not a generic question, but a pointed question for each of us to consider. Maybe you've answered that question every day of your life in the affirmative. I do believe, and you've said what Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Good answer. Good <laughs> answer. You are the Christ. You're my Savior. You're the one I need to pull me out of misery, to pull me out of sin and into the life that you promise. Such a pointed question from Jesus to Martha requires that even if you don't physically come forward today at the end of the service, you must come to Jesus today. Even if you don't physically come forward to kneel on the steps of this church hopefully, spiritually, in your heart as we sing in Christ alone right after this, that is your profession of faith. That is your coming forward to proclaim, I believe this. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. You must believe this for salvation. Don't wait another day thinking you might believe it tomorrow or the next day or a week ahead, believe today on the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel says and you will be saved. If you believed it for a long time and you've heard it a thousand times, commit yourself again to believing in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So even though we don't have an altar call in the liturgy, we all need to come to the Lord With the same faith that Martha had, I do believe, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. When you believe, when you remember Jesus' promise, uh, you'll also see amazing things like what Martha saw. That's what Jesus said in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We may not see a physical resurrection happen in our lives, but we'll see the kingdom of God. We'll see ourselves growing in righteousness and humility and trust in God. We'll see people around us being blessed because we trust in Jesus and his resurrection power is at work in us. And so this call to believe in Jesus is is a call to see the glory of God. And so do you believe this? It's the first question and application. The second, certainly if you believe this, talk and pray and teach about the resurrection of Jesus. The challenge isn't just for uh, the fosters today on the day of Everly's baptism, that they would talk and pray and teach about the resurrection of Jesus to Everly as she's growing up, but it's a challenge for all of us. It's even a a covenant oath that we've made that we will do this. Christians need to talk and pray and teach about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus. It is good and necessary to talk about the forgiveness of sins. We must do that. It is good and necessary to talk about following Jesus. Certainly, that's the command that Jesus gave to his disciples. But I believe Christians can also get a lot better at talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is good that we focus on forgiveness of our sins. We have to, it's the gospel. It is good that we talk about following Jesus, sometimes in, in general ways, and hopefully that always transforms into particular ways that will follow Jesus as well, but, but I hope that we could incorporate into our vocabulary this word, resurrection, resurrection, that Jesus is raised from the dead. We can do better at, at at talking about this title of Jesus in our personal prayers, can't we? How would it transform your prayer life to begin a prayer? O oh God, you have raised your son from the dead. Think of all that that will change in your own prayer life. Praying for this nation, praying for the church throughout the world, praying for this congregation, praying for your children, praying for anything. Oh God, you are the God who raises people from the dead. The God of resurrection. The Christian faith is a faith of resurrection from the dead. How will that impact your prayer life, your confidence, your motivation even to go to work? As believers, we can do a better job at incorporating this title of Jesus into our thinking, into our conversation, and into, certainly, our prayer life. But, I don't want to conclude with just this instruction. Let's just dwell on this for a moment. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The life. Brothers and sisters, through the forgiveness of sins, we have our sin removed from us. Jesus takes away from us the guilt, the shame of our sin. But then he, he fills it. He fills our lives with real life. If we remind one another of the resurrection, our attention towards not just turns towards not just what Jesus takes away, which is our sin, but if we talk of the resurrection, our attention turns also to what Jesus gives, namely, life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he gives resurrection and life for anyone who believes in him. Amen. Let's pray.